are so glad you're listening to the FBC Clarion podcast. Pastor Jason is in Acts 6 today discussing themism. And yes, he did make that word up. You can take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 6. We'll be shortly reading the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6. As we look at another struggle that the early church had, and again, it's a first century struggle, but I also see within it a 21st century struggle, uh, one that we will probably be very aware of. One of the reasons that it makes this particular topic that we'll be looking at today um, a difficult or uncomfortable thing for us to address. As I told you last week, we're um, looking at these different uh, issues that the or struggles that the church had to deal with still has to deal with um, that often lead or can cause division the and I've kind of terming them all in isms uh, last week was heroism where people get their biblical scholar hero and and even inadvertently sometimes set them up on a pedestal so they become this kind of idolic worship kind of thing and take the place and take their eyes off Jesus this week we're talking about themism. <clears throat> Another way you'll hear me say it a lot of it, uh, today is uh, those people. Here's a, here's a truth about human nature. People like and tend towards homogeneous clusters. Now that sounds like something you'd hear in a college class, I think. Um, basically what that means is birds of a feather flock together, right? Uh, that we as people are most comfortable in groups identical or as most identical to ourselves as we can find. That we just like to get together with people like us. And in those groups, we feel comfortable and we feel secure. It gives us this sense of security that I'm like everybody and everybody's like me and it just makes me feel better about myself, makes me feel secure. And it's interesting that security for many or most people is a pretty high motivational factor that we seek security and comfort above a lot of things. Actually in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, he kind of has this hierarchy of what humans need to survive and thrive. Security follows just after air, food, water, and shelter. This sense of of, of comfort, the sense of security. And we find that when we get together with people who are like ourselves. And this is just kind of a human nature thing. So let me kind of give you a little background before we read um, he, uh, Acts chapter uh, 6, what's going on. So we know that in Acts chapter 2, we see the birth of the church, Pentecost comes, uh, thousands of people are getting saved and joining the church. Peter preaches the first sermon. There's like 3,000 people get saved and baptized that day. And from there, the church really gets going. And people are, are loving on one another. They're caring for each other. They're coming together in unity. They're selling their possessions. They're making sure they're looking out for each other. And, and the world is just really challenged by the unity that this, this new group, these people of the way are having with each other. People from every walk, from all the cultures are all coming together. Thousands are being saved. Shortly after that, Satan, seeing what happens, begins a series of attacks. And they're outside attacks. Uh, they're another struggle that we'll, base, uh, we'll, we'll look at a little bit later on in the series, but it's the struggle of persecution. 
And so Satan starts to send people from the synagogues and the Pharisees and the Jews and the Romans and all these people start attacking the church from the outside. And honestly, it has very little effect. If anything, it spurs the church on. This, this outside attack's like, oh, we must be doing something right. And it, it invigorates them. It, 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 it enlivens the church. At one point, the disciples are, or a couple of disciples are called into the synagogue and they're told never to preach about Jesus again. And they're beaten because of it. And the Bible describes them walking away in joy and, and rejoicing because they were considered to, to punish and be suffer for the sake of Christ. And it actually made them happy that this attack was coming on. So I think in the grand scheme of things, not that I um, understand all spiritual uh, realms there, but, but Satan seems to shift his attack. He's like, okay, well, the outside stuff isn't phasing them. This is not slowing them down. And actually all he's doing is encourage them. Let, let's take a different tactic on this. Let's attack from the inside. And so then we see in Acts chapter 6, really one of the first divisions, one of the first attacks come from the inside of the church. I think this is where Satan, you've heard the great, or, or one of the strategies of life where people are trying to gain power, this idea of divide and conquer. I think that comes from the pits of hell itself. And that's what, Jesus, that's what Satan tries to do to the church. He's like, well, if we're going to slow this, this church down, if we're going to stop all that's going on and that God's doing, we need to get them divided. And then we can break them up and then we can conquer them one by one. That seems to be the, the, the plan that Satan has. And so we just need to realize that Satan loves. Maybe his number one attack against the church is division. Satan loves to divide the church. And will infiltrate the church to do it. There's some really strong, and we'll look at these at some point or another, but there's some really strong language, like at the end of Romans, where it talks about people who would cause division within the church. And the Bible says, have nothing to do with these people. Get rid of them. Shun them. It's, it's really strong language on how the Bible tells us to deal with people who would come within to the church and cause division within the church body. Because I do believe this is a, a scheme of Satan. We see that start to get lived out. And it's interesting. Acts chapter 6. It's not long from Acts chapter 2 to Acts chapter 6. From the birth of the church to really the very first divisive issue that they had to face. And so let's read that together. In Acts chapter 6 starting with verse 1. It says, now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. So things are going good, right? They're increasing in number. A, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, Is it not right that we should give up preaching the word to serve tables? Therefore, brothers, pick out from among, your, from among you seven men of good repute, full of spirit and wisdom, whom we'll, who we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurius, and Nicanor, and Timon, and uh, Parmenius, and, and Nicholas, and a, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. In verse 7, And the word of God continued to increase, 
And the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We usually look at this passage as teaching us about what we would probably call the prototype deacons. That there's these, these seven people kind of selected from the congregation to see to the ministry of people. But what we really need to see a little bit is what sparked that that. Uh, that prototype, these deacons, what we might call, some people will call these are the first deacons or the prototype deacons. What, what sparked this to happen was the issue. There was an issue between two groups of people. There was a group of, of Jews who spoke Hebrew or, or spoke Aramaic, the traditional Hebrew language. Uh, they probably were raised in Jerusalem, lived in Jerusalem all their lives. They were, they were, uh, they were just ethnically Hebrew in all kinds of ways. And then there's another group of ladies uh, who had moved into town, probably had spent most of their lives somewhere in Greece or in that kind of, and they spoke Greek. They didn't speak the Aramaic. And so there's this division within their languages because they were from a different culture. They were a different place. They'd grown up, and maybe in their old age, they wanted to live in Jerusalem even though they were Jews, or they'd come back because they had family there, and they're now widows, and this was the only place that they could find shelter for themselves. And so this argument between these two groups of ladies uh, or, or the people groups that are in the church arises. Now most scholars see this as a type of racism that, that was breaking out in the church. And so I really want to address the idea of racism first. And, and so racism, as you probably know, is an uncomfortable and a hot button topic of the world. And I'm guessing as you're aware of that truth, especially with some of the events that's happened over the last week or so. Now, let me tell you this. This is where it gets a little odd. So you know, I set my schedule for preaching weeks ago. I've been preparing this sermon weeks in advance, and it just happened to fall on today. I know you think I target people, but I don't, or target times. I don't. It just happened this way. This is what makes me sometimes think, Maybe God's a little bit more involved in our sermons than we sometimes realize. That, that, that the planning process that I'm sitting there doing, and I think it's all me, might be in his hands too. And so the challenge for me is like, okay, this is on the schedule. Do I follow through with the schedule that I set three or four weeks ago, or do I not? And so I've decided to stick with the schedule that I laid out, just so you know that. But I want to say this about racism. And, and this is a truth that I think we need to start with. Biblically speaking, there are no races. All right? Key word being the S. <laughs> the key part of that word being the S on the end of race. Races. What I mean by that, there are not multiple races within the human race. There aren't different subgroups that have somehow evolved into what we recognize as humanity today. There is one race, and every shade and physical difference we observe is just the pooling of various genetic traits into a particular geographic area. Right? There's one race. We are all descendants of Adam and Eve. And this is important for the gospel because Jesus came to save the line of Adam. 
And if we want people to get saved, he's called the second Adam. And if we want people to get saved, they need to belong to the race of Adam because that's who Jesus came to save. He didn't come to save angels. He didn't come to save anybody but the descendants of Adam. And every person on the face of this planet is a descendant of Adam and can be offered salvation in the second Adam of the Bible. That's a truth. We're 100%, all of us are 100% human. We are all made in the image of God. And because of that, we all have purpose, value, and an authority over us, which that is God himself, our creator. Now, the problem is for many people, that's the end of the subject. The Bible says it doesn't exist. That settles it. I'm done. The truth of the matter is, if I'm being honest with you today, probably the part that makes me the most uncomfortable is to admit to you that's where I was for a long time. The Bible says it doesn't exist. Doesn't exist. Let's move on. But that's not the end of the story, sadly. Biblically speaking, there are no races, but that's not the end of the world in which we live in. So let's talk about what there is. Ethnicity does exist. And, and this is the definition I use for, for ethnicity. People of a similar culture, language, dress, traditions, beliefs, practices, etc. People who would look at somebody and say, oh, you're like me, based on whatever that might be. You speak the same language, you look similar, you dress similar, you believe similar things, you practice similar things, you think similar to I do. We're alike, and we're different than those people in whatever ethnicity we want to do. This exists within the world. I would tell you this, that race as we understand it in our world is really a social construct. And over the years, I've been kind of dealing with the own, my own racism that I was kind of taught as a child or picked up from the environment I grew in. I had to understand some of this. Now, what's a social construct? Well, a social construct is a concept that exists. It's not an objective reality, but it results, but it's the result of human interaction. It exists because humans agree that it exists. I'll give you a couple of examples that might help you understand. Adulthood. We all agree there's a time when children cease to be children and become adults. And different societies construct different parameters around that. For us in America, it's relatively the age of 18. <laughs> when you turn 18, you're now an adult. Ta-da-da! Right? Some of us would argue about the validity of that. But in our social construct, that's how we constructed it. In other countries, it's 16. In the Jewish culture, it might be the age 13. And that culture formed a construct to define when somebody would be an adult. Another one that we're really familiar with, monetary systems, money. Hey, I think I got some. I got my allowance this week. I didn't spend it all on coffee yet. Last one, not getting another cup of coffee this week. This is a piece of paper. Special paper with special ink, but a piece of paper with ink on it. But we all think, we've all agreed, this has a certain amount of value. This one, not so much. Some of the ones y'all got in your wallet, a little bit more. 
you know, but we all agree that this has value, and I can give this to somebody, and they'll give me food, they'll give me a piece of bubble gum, they'll give me whatever it is, because we've all decided to put value within this thing. It's nothing more than a piece of paper. It's a construct within society that we all agree upon to help us function and interact with one another. I'll give you one more example. Driving rules. This is a social construct. We all think you're supposed to drive on the right side of the road. Our, our culture, our society has constructed this like, if you, when you hit the road, go on right. If you go to other countries, their social construct is a little bit different. They drive on the wrong side of the road, right? See, we, and, and there we are. It's us and them. You know, those people who drive on the wrong side of the road because of their social construct, we all know that our construct is the right one. And so division starts to happen in these constructs. Personally, as I would tell you, biblically, there is no such thing as racism. Again, I believe the concept, the social construct of race and races is a ploy of the devil to divide people yet again. I believe it comes again from the pit of hell. But ethnicities, these cultural differences do exist. That's a reality. If you don't notice, if you haven't been around very long, there's different types or groups of people around the world, and they group up according to language and the food they eat and the way they dress and how they wear their hair and all kinds of different reasons. And so if ethnicity exists, then ethnic prejudice does exist. This, this idea, this predetermined attitude, usually negative, towards people who are different than us. And so you start to see the problem. We like people, we find comfort in people like us, and then we all started looking around, well, y'all are different than us. You must be bad. Because our way of doing things, like driving on the right-hand side of the road, is the right way. And y'all do things differently with us, then you must be wrong. This is a prejudice. We, we, we prejudge people based on these ethnicities. And here's the truth. Ethnic, or ethnic, uh, ethnic that should have been ethnic, sorry. Ethnic division is a pervasive issue for humanity. Pretty much always has been, always will be. We see here in the first century, these ladies who are all widows fussing with each other because, oh, you're one of those Greek speakers. Oh, you're one of those Aramaic speakers. And they're fussing and they identify basically over where they lived and the language they speak. And so they're, I have, I've traveled parts of the world. I have found this to be true almost everywhere I go that ethnic division seems to be a pervasive problem within the human system. Where I grew up, it's what's most often thought of as racism, black and white. And that covers the whole gambit. And that's an issue that I grew up with, that's an issue I grew up struggling with, and it's a pervasive issue within the community where I grew up. It's part of it, but that's not the end of it. Where Shelley grew up, it wasn't a black-white division, it was, are you Irish? Are you Polish? Are you Italian? Right? And everybody had their own club. There's, there's the club for the Italians, there's the club for the Irish, and there's the club for the Polish and whatever other European group that happened to be there. And they all recognized each other and they could tell, oh, you're from the Italian group, oh, you're from the Irish group, or whatever. And they would divide over their European ethnicities. When I went to Uganda, there were still tribal divides that existed in Uganda. 
And I didn't realize it, but I was with people and we were traveling and somebody started to open my eyes and go, oh, they're from that tribe. I'm like, how can you tell? Well, can't you hear their voice? I'm like, well, what? Hear how they sound. Well, don't, can't you see? They look different. I'm like, they do. <laughs> look the same to me. There were over 10 tribes, I think, if I remember correctly, within Uganda, and each group was a specific ethnicity, and they stayed very loyal to their tribe. And if you belong to another tribe, and however, they, they could see the difference. They could hear the difference. They could tell the difference. Oh, you belong to that one. You belong to that one. They belong to that one. And they're like that. And they're like that. And they're like that. And they had all, and I'm like, holy cow, it's the same thing as where I grew up in South Carolina. It's just within the tribes of Uganda. It's the same thing. In the Middle East, we have the Israeli and the Arab or the Palestinian divide. Uh, interesting enough, even in, within Islam itself, you have the, the Sunni and the Shia division that they see each other and, oh, y'all wrong and we're wrong and you're one of those people within that culture. If you've ever watched the movie The Tip of the Spear that talks about the, the missionaries that went into the Amazon rainforest, the Elliots that were killed, we find out that even within those tribes, they're going around stabbing each other because you belong to that tribe and you belong to this tribe. These divisions, this pervasive division of ethnicity permeates human history around the globe. Us in the South don't have the shoe hold on that whole thing, or, or we don't own it exclusively. It's a worldwide human condition. And so we must realize, and we see that, that's what's happening in Acts chapter six. This prejudice between these two groups, the, the Hellenists and the Hebrews is coming to light and it's threatening to cause division within the first century church. Now it's interesting that this is a group of, of uh, Widows who depended upon, because they didn't have a man in their life, they weren't able to go out and get a job, they depended on other people to take care of them. And it's interesting, they're fussing about the language, or they're noticing this language, this, this ethnic barrier between them, and they're not focusing on all the same things that they have in common. Oh, you lost your husband? I lost my husband too. I know how you feel. I know how you feel. They, they're concentrating on their differences, which is usually the case, instead of concentrating on the similarities and the, and the same plight, that they're walking the same plight together. That these widows depended upon this. So anyway, I think it would be good for us to just consider how the church dealt with this ethnic division, this, this problem. Well, we see them electing these deacons, and we'll get to that in a minute. But I, I want you to see the first thing the church did. The church did not waste time arguing about the validity of the problem. They didn't go, oh, we need to launch a probe. Let's find out how much these people are getting, and let's find out how much these people are getting, and let's see if there's any validity to this problem. Let's spend six months doing a study to figure out if the complaint's legitimate or not, or if we need to, to you know, that kind of time, that kind of thinking wastes time. It, 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 it invalidated, and usually it's sought to justify. No, what we're doing is actually right. Look, you know, and, and we try to explain away. They didn't waste time doing that. Was it true? Were the Hellenistic people being treated differently than the Hebrew, children, the Hebrew ladies? I don't know. Maybe they were. Maybe it was just their imagination. Maybe it was just their perception of how things were going. Maybe, maybe they weren't being. Maybe it was completely fair. I don't know. But the church didn't seem to get too involved in trying to determine whether it was true or not. What they did is they listened. 
And at the very least, they gave the ladies the benefit of the doubt. Said, okay, you're hurting. I, I see you're hurting. I, I care about you. And so instead of belittling you, arguing with you, and making you feel even worse, let's see what we can do to fix this problem. We'll, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. How much conflict could be solved within the church if we would just learn to give one another the benefit of the doubt? That we would just like, okay, how can I meet you where you're at? Instead of arguing that you aren't where you should be. How can I love you because that's what I do? I love you no matter what. That would be a good place to start. Well, that's what the church did, I think. They didn't argue. We don't see there being a big argument. They kind of get right to fixing the problem. The next thing is probably the most interesting. It at least marks a significant change within the church life as the church started out in the first century. They relied on the church to fix the problem. See, you see the picture here. There's an issue. There's a complaint. And everybody runs to the apostles. They run to the leaders and like, fix this, fix this, fix this. Y'all need to fix this. And the apostles go, well, why don't y'all pick seven people from you and take care of it yourself? And so the church relied on the church to take care of itself. It wasn't this, this top-down kind of thing. It's we're all in this together. We have our roles as the apostles. We're supposed to be praying and preaching and teaching. You have your roles to care for one another and love one another and get along with each other. And so they gave them control, authority, and purpose in taking care of the life of the church. This is probably very different than what happened and what many of them were used to in the temple where the Pharisees will handle it. Right? The Sadducees, we got it under control. You know, We'll tell y'all what to do and y'all do it. We say jump, y'all say how high, and we'll just run this thing really well. Had to be empowering. They said, find people within you to serve. And we got to realize that, that church unity and, and, and is all of our responsibility. Ordinary people, people, given the role of church governance, see the elevating, in this we see the elevation of people, of all people, usually caused by Christian equality. That at the foot of the cross we're all the same. And we all have a role. We're all part of the body, right? And every part of the body is important. Uh, I often tell the story of, the, of my friend when I was in church camp one year who had multiple sclerosis, and she was giving her testimony, and she said, you know, I realize if I'm part of the body, well, then I'm just a nose hair because my body's broken, and I'm pretty little useless. I can't even run. I have to walk crutches all the time. And that's how she felt about herself. And she said, then one day God laid it on my heart, the importance of nose hairs. Frontline defense of the body. You got junk coming in, it's the nose hair's job that's like, nope, you're not going in. We're not getting all that dust down in our lungs so we'll die. We're not getting that kind of stuff in there. I am the, the number one defense agent of the body. And then she was able to hold her. Every part of the body is important. And it's up to the body to take care of itself. And to look out for itself. And he turns and the apostles and their wisdom say, look, we got our role. You know, it's not better or worse than your role. It's just our role. You guys take care of the body. It's just a beautiful picture of where they turn. We see the apostles' response. And it appears to be that they are, you know, they're, instead of the leaders taking care of it, they turn to the church. And I will tell you this about racism 
about ethnic division, racism as a, con as a social construct, ethnic division that exists. The only hope in the world for that to be done away with is the church of Jesus Christ. It's the only hope the world ha hopes because those of us who are born again believers, bought by the blood of Jesus, united together in a commonality to serve his kingdom, if we are the only ones who are told to deny ourselves and put others before ourselves and to get along, we are the only hope. And if we can't do it within the church, then the world is hopeless when it comes to that. It is the church's responsibility to see that all people of all nations are brought together. The next thing they did, we see them, we, we, we kind of infer this, that they learned to live with those people, those, you know, them. The truth of the matter is that living with those people is one of the major teachings of what Jesus taught us to do. There's a number of New Testament examples um, that he gives. First of all, in Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13, it says, it shows us Jesus himself. And Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he eat with those people? Why is he with them? Right? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well do not need a physician. Those who are sick... Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but the sinners. That Jesus was in the constant habit of being, hanging out with those people. And it got him in trouble more than once with the Pharisees. What are you doing with them? Why aren't you with us? Don't you know we're the good people and they're the bad people? There's two stories that Jesus tells. There's two events uh, that uh, that that take place in the Bible that absolutely convince me that the Bible is not a Jewish Bible. It's not a written from a Jewish perspective. The first one takes place in John chapter 4, where Jesus <clears throat> hangs out or, or meets and talks with another one of those people. In this case, it's the worst of the worst. It's a Samaritan woman who was probably a woman of ill repute, right? And so he meets with her at the well. He has this conversation. He reveals himself as the Messiah. And the story ends in John chapter 4, starting with, uh, with verse 39. It says, Many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed for two days. A good Jewish boy like Jesus hanging out for two days with those people. The Samaritans. That was the worst of them. And he's talking to this woman. And the, the thing I love about the story, the hero in the story of the Samaritan woman is the Samaritan woman. She, you remember, just to kind of highlight this a little bit, she's at the well getting water in the afternoon. The disciples, the twelve, head off to town to get some bread. Jesus has an interaction with this woman. In the process, here they start to come back, and she leaves. So they pass each other, right? They come back from town, and they bring some bread. And he's telling them what's going on. And they're like, why are you? They actually think to themselves, why are you hanging out with that woman? That's a quote from them. Like, what are you doing with her? Don't you know that she's one of them? Is what's implied. He starts talking with the disciples. 
And then he, he says a, a line that we are all super familiar with. Pray to the Lord of the harvest because the, the laborers are few, but the, the, you know, the, there's plenty of right people to him. And he's pointing to the Samaritan woman. And what she's doing, she's leading a whole gaggle of people from the same town that the disciples just went to. She's leading a whole gaggle of them out of the city to come meet Jesus. The very people that Jesus didn't bring one person with them from the town. They brought a loaf of bread. And she goes back and brings the people. And they then put their faith in Christ and ask Jesus to stay. And he hangs out with them for a couple more days. Teaching us to live, minister, and care about those people. Those people that we would have nothing to do with. That Jews wouldn't have had anything to do with in their day. There's one other story that's very famous from Luke chapter 10. Verse 25 through 29, Jesus tells the whole story. And it starts off from Luke, verse 25, it says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Teacher, what shall I, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the Pharisee, this lawyer, answered, You shall love your Lord and your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with your strength and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and live. Then the smart guy, right, but desiring to justify himself, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells another story, one that you're familiar with. We call it the Good Samaritan. Again, the hero of the story is the Samaritan. One of those people who the Jews would have said, that's one of them. That's one of those people. Why is he the hero of the story? And Jesus' point is, those people, they're your neighbors. Love them as you love yourself. The struggle is that there's all kinds of people out there that we would classify as them. Not just ethnic issues, that's one. The people by their lifestyles, people by their beliefs, people by their political party, people by their ethnicity, people by the music they listen to, people by the age that they are. Heck, we'll divide over whether you're from the country or from the city, right? You're one of those people who grew up in the city. You're not like, you know, I was teaching Caleb yesterday how to sing A Country Boy Can Survive. We were listening to that yesterday <laughs> when we were playing. We need to remind ourselves, as the church did, that living with those people, being with those people, is the expectation of our Lord. The church needed a reminding of this. This is not the only time the church will struggle with this. Actually, it will come up several times within the church's life. And in Galatians chapter 3, it says this, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. There is a unity, because we have all put and we are now challenged to live with one another. Final thing I want you to see in this passage is they dealt with this. I think they dealt with it pretty well. <clears throat> um, some people would even point out that the, many of the names of the guys they got to, to administer it have Greek names. So the Hellenists were picking, were, were uh, arguing, or, or the Hebrews were arguing about the Greek speaking Hellenists. And apparently a lot of the names that, that these men, these seven prototype disease, they're Greek names. And, so, and they were satisfied with these Greek people looking out for them. And so apparently they solved the issue 
pretty well. And then they reap the reward of unity. The church reaped this reward of being unified. That this scheme of Satan to divide them from within didn't work. Verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase. And the numbers of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many priests became obedient to the faith. The truth of the matter is, is the unified church of God is an unstoppable force for the kingdom of God. But the problem that we face when we look at this is we have to ask ourselves a question. What, what causes this division uh, is that are we concerned? What are we focused on? What do we want? Do we want to see God's kingdom advance or do we want my church to advance? Are we building God's kingdom or my church that I want to look my way and to look out after me? And next week, we're going to talk about a, a kind of a side issue of this deism, themism, that we call, I'm going to call meism, where we start to just be worried about what I want, me, myself, and I. But really, the heart of the thing is, do we want God's kingdom or my church to grow? Because if we want God's kingdom to grow, the Bible lays that out pretty specifically, what that looks like. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one can number every nation from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne and before the land people from every ethnicity that has ever existed around the lamb's throne clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb this is God's kingdom. This is God's plan for his kingdom. And my question is, if this is what heaven's going to be like, why aren't we busy making earth look a little bit like what God wants it to look like in heaven? That's our task. And this division that comes from Satan over ethnicity is something we have to be very diligent to work against. So let me take a couple of moments for application. Do we have a problem? I don't think so. The truth about it, as far as First Baptist Church Clarion goes, we are a diverse ethnic congregation, theologically diverse even in some cases. At least we're as diverse as you can be in Clarion, Pennsylvania. All right? We're, we're, we're about as diverse as it gets. And so I'm grateful for that. The truth of the matter is this kind of issue is probably very individually individualistic issue something that we hold within our hearts now I don't and I'll just be honest with you I don't expect anybody to leave today and say Jason that was a really good sermon you were really stomping on my toes today right nobody's gonna say that to me today if I was pre no, preaching on gluttony you know which was one of those sins that we accept and make light of a little bit more they'd probably be playing people oh yeah I'll eat a salad today Jason you know they'd they, they'd come up with some way of dealing with that. But this is not one, this is, this is more heart issue. This is more an individual issue. People don't readily share this. In, in our society, it's been so harped on in our society that when we struggle in these areas, we keep them well, well hidden. And only if we're in a very particular group, in a very secure setting of people who are very much like us, might we ever 
say something that revealed the struggle that was within our hearts. Or sometimes, in a, in a, in a time of stress or, or a time of hardship like what's going on in Acts chapter 6, we kind of let it slip out. You know, you're taking better care of those Hebrews than you are us Hellenists, right? They were upset. They kind of slipped out what was going on in their hearts. But for some of us, this probably applies. That we think of those people, them and us. And so I just have two questions that you need to ask yourself as you struggle with this, as I have struggled with it, as I continue to struggle with it and grow with it in my area and in my life. First, identify who those people are. It will be too easy to say, well, I get along with all the black people. It's not just a black and white. There's all kinds of them, and there's all kinds of them-isms out there. And there's probably someone in your life that you would classify as those people. I'll give you a name. <laughs> Millennials. Right? That's those people for a lot of them. It's so bad. That word has become so bad that people who fall within that category, you better not call them one of those because they will get upset about it really quick. Maybe that's just an age difference, an age prejudice we have about certain people. There could be a lot of classifications for us to struggle with those people that we're supposed to love with. And then once you can identify who those people are for you, those you would classify as them, what are you going to do to change your attitude about them? I'll offer one suggestion. Pray for them. Pray for, and not that country song where I pray that, you know, the plant will fall on your head and your car will get run over and your cat will get run over. No, pray for their blessings. Pray for God's grace to their life. Pray for God's goodness to abound to them. And here's the danger of that. Is if you pray that goodness for those people, God might decide to use you as the very agent to be the blessing. And then our lives will change. And the unity of Christ will be experienced. And the reward will be ours. That's my challenge for us today. Because this is what Jesus taught us to do. This is what Jesus did so well. This is what Jesus' church was known for. And this is a struggle we've had since the very beginning. Acts chapter 6 isn't very far away from Acts chapter 2. But to live and care for those people, whoever they are. Thank you so much for joining us today. We would love to know who is listening. Text us at 814-334-8426. We would love to connect with you. Pastor Jason will personally answer your text. And, side note, he loves to answer your questions. So send him a question and he'll get back to you. Have a great week.